1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live, 10 till 1, Monday to Friday, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, and on the Times Radio app. But you know that. If you want to come on the radio, by the way, if you want to come on and play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Very easy. Well, I mean, sometimes it's easy. 10 questions loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. So the more questions you get right, the better the job you get in our cabinet. And then if you get to number 10 and get that right, you become Prime Minister. And we send you a certificate. Who doesn't want a certificate? If you want to come on and play the quiz, email me matt.chorley at times.radio. matt.chorley at times.radio. Just send me your name and number and we'll get you on the radio very soon. Right, coming up on the podcast today, a very simple question. Are today's politicians the worst Are they really? We've been, over the last few weeks, we've heard from the likes of Andrew Neil and Andrew Marr and Jeremy Vine and Jonathan Dimbleby reflecting on the calibre of today's politicians. We've pulled them all together to ask uh, that question. We've got a great panel uh, coming up. Peter Bottomley, the father of the House, uh, looks back on almost 50 years in the House of Commons and compares today's MPs to those that have come before. We've got legendary journalist Eleanor Goodman. We've uh, got the author and journalist Isabel Harbour. So a cracking panel uh, to uh, assess if today's politicians really are the worst. We'll do that uh, in just a moment. First as ever, on a Tuesday, we kick off with our columnist panel, and it must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion.
2: It's alive, it's alive, it's alive!
1: Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, on Times Radio. Yes, uh, as everyone on Tuesday, I'm joined in the studio by Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in from home, it's David Aronovich. Morning, David.
3: I was actually smaller in the 90s. <laughs> I just, uh, it's, getting bigger has been a kind of unfortunate thing. Actually, William Hague devotes some of his column to uh, uh, dealing with the government's uh, lack of an obesity strategy and so on. So this is one reason why I
1: think I've got bigger since the 90s. So uh, go on then, as you've brought it up, let's talk about that first of all. Uh, the government is another U-turn. Uh, there was a time when they were going to ban uh, lots of things, impose a watershed of nine o'clock on junk food advertising, banning buy one, get one, free deals on unhealthy things. Um, Borgeson's been on quite a journey on this. He was against it. He thought it was all nanny state nonsense. Then when he had COVID and was told he was basically very overweight, uh, he's only became an enthusiast for uh, healthier eating. And now they've rode back on it. Good idea or not, David? Um, I don't want so much to talk about the idea
3: itself, actually, because the thing that you've raised there is the thing which is really intriguing me. You remember that Dominic Cummings, in one of his um, uh, uh, Jeremiah ads about, the, about Boris Johnson, and a famous phrase, and I think it was really brilliant, he said, under Boris Johnson, everything is reversible and everything will be reversed. <laughs> in other words, if he comes up with an eye-catching statement about something that he's going to do and that he's decided is a really good idea, you can be absolutely certain that at some point in the future, it'll be dropped uh, because it encounters some form of opposition, uh, usually amongst the same, roughly the same sect of Tory backbenchers and Tory thinkers from whom he has drawn a lot of uh, a lot of his support. And this is an absolutely classic example. It's, exact, it's exactly as you say. You go into the pandemic, he gets uh, uh, COVID, comes out of it, and says, "One thing I've done this fantastic lesson about obesity, etc." So I've now. Absolutely up for this. Just as earlier, when he was a writer he'd say, "Oh well, wind farms wouldn't knock the skin off a rice pudding," and then we're going to have wind. We'll become the Saudi Arabia of wind, etc. <laughs> and uh, it's the same, exactly the same thing with the oven-ready deal that turns out to conclude a protocol which um he he wants, which he wishes to renounce. Then allowing it to be known that he's about to kind of revoke it, etc. And then allowing it to be known that he's not about to revoke it, etc. When he runs into a bit of a- opposition. So the thing that I want to really concentrate upon here is when Boris Johnson went to Northern Ireland, the one thing that you could get from any Northern Ireland politician of any strike whatsoever, and indeed commentator, was that none of them believed what he said and uh, none of them said, believed that he meant what he said uh, or that any promise that he gave would actually stick. And that's quite an interesting situation to go. And it goes back to the question you've asked about, is this crop of politicians worse? To which the answer is, as a generalisation, probably not. But when it comes to certain kinds of characteristics, we certainly live in a particular era. And that's the one that really stands out for me in the obesity thing, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, and I'm inclined towards uh, William Hague on this, but nevertheless, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, it is absolutely typical of a situation whereby the government doesn't stick to any significant position or position of principle
1: for more than the ten minutes it takes to garner some opposition to it. And, and the point with that, Danny, is that opponents, whether inside the Tory party or in the Cabinet or outside, know that if they keep banging on about something enough, they can get their way. You know, well, so you've got a government with an eight or 75 seat majority can't even ban foie gras. <laughs> Listen, one of my favorite
4: things about the government is that it changes its mind when it's wrong. Um but unfortunately it also changes its mind when it's right and that's one of my least favorite <laughs> things about the government. <laughs> um and and I I you know, I'm over I do think it's very important for governments to have the flexibility to change their mind, but at the bottom of it there is a a Tory um a, a sort of uh, Difficulty of of understanding, uh, which I shared myself actually, and I've moved myself on this issue. So I was definitely uh, twenty years ago uh, reflexively libertarian about such issues as what the government should uh, regulate in terms of obesity, and I've shifted my position because I think we understand more economics. Maybe people would say I was just stupid at the time and they understood it and I didn't, <laughs> which I'm perfectly willing to accept. Whatever it is, either I or uh, the economics professional both uh, have reached a greater understanding about what it is that uh, makes people buy things. And that's what's very good about William Hague's column, if you haven't read it, uh, to listeners recommend that you do, uh, because it makes some of the arguments which suggest that something like buy one, get one free, if you think about it for a second, a company doesn't introduce buy one, get one free uh, to reduce the cost of living of their company customers, right? They introduced it to increase the cost of living of their customers by making them buy something they wouldn't otherwise buy. Otherwise, they wouldn't have introduced these uh, policies. Uh, So it doesn't make sense as a cost of living measure to reduce it. It is a uh, a very simplistic view of how consumers act, uh, which I think a lot of behavioural economics has just shown is untrue just one experiment for instance a, a, a bowl of soup that was refilled from underneath people just kept on eating it right now if you <laughs> ask them if you ask them rationally how much soup they'd wanted they'd have given you a different answer to what they actually did when the f- soup was now which of those things is the genuine consumer reaction and I think we've just learned that that uh, sort of instinctive libertarianism there's no role consumers make these choices they don't make mistakes because consumers are rational we've learned that that doesn't fully describe uh, economic behavior and because we've learned that about markets we ought to that ought to be included And boris johnson is very conflicted about that one part of him uh just is kind of part of this kind of merry england it's sort of 1980s classic position where i was another part of him does actually knows i think he's actually a pretty bright guy uh, that that isn't quite right and so therefore he's convinced by the other arguments and he can never pick between his sort of old base and some of his new understandings and we get this constant going back and forward.
1: Um, it, do you think uh, David it's in part because day, uh, Boris Johnson is at heart a columnist? Uh, and part of being a columnist is, you know, I've got opinions. If you don't like those, way I've got some other ones. And that actually, and, and actually, if you've got a columnist sort of approach to life, you allow yourself permission to change your mind. You say, well, I've looked a bit more into it, and actually, I've changed. You know, as Danny's just but actually, as a way to run a government, it's a bit chaotic and it lacks bottom.
3: Are you on a quest to find the various ways in which you can insult your guests before, uh, <laughs> before eleven o'clock? Can I just say, and I think it's the true, is the same as true, of Danny. That is not my approach to column writing at all, um, and 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 never has been. Which actually is why we have kind of unique difficulties. It may also be why we were bigger in the nineties. Um, uh, I. I I, I am less forgiving of this uh, than Danny is. I mean, he may describe it as some kind of strange intellectual confliction in Boris Johnson. I'm afraid that I see a degree of uh, lack of political strategy, a lack of political nous, a lack of real understanding about what he went into do be, be prime minister for, what he wanted, what it was that he actually wanted to achieve. Well, I think he is a striker of attitudes. Beyond everything, uh, um, and so, I do, so so I don't really buy into the notion of intellectual conflict.
4: Look, but the difference between us doesn't really matter because in the end it's the same outcome, right? So what the whether whether it's a more generous or less generous interpretation of why it happens doesn't matter. I think one of the things that Boris Johnson clearly doesn't understand is that, uh, which I definitely have learned through a lot of writing columns, there are very strong arguments for often completely counterposed positions. Yeah, and actually there is a strong argument for the libertarian position. Uh, on uh, on consumer rights and for government not ladling on loads and loads of different uh, regulations as there is a strong argument going in the other direction and the problem with one of the problems that Boris Johnson has I think is he swings back and forward as you can see Both of these arguments have some strength. Now, I've come over time to think the argument that William Hague put in his column today, which actually I wouldn't have expressed as strongly as he did, but I did basically agree with, um, because I think in the end he called it morally reprehensible. I think that was too strong for me, uh, but, you know, that's his opinion rather than mine. Um, Nevertheless, I think that uh, there there is, you know, that's the stronger argument, but there are arguments the other way. And the problem I think Boris Johnson has, whether it's a columnist's problem or not, is a a common thing which is it's not that there is no there's nothing behind the argument that he's moving to it's not it's not a ridiculous position I just don't agree with
3: it but 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 Danny if you don't mind me saying here you have imposed your own intellectual construction on something where it simply doesn't exist (laughs) Uh, the government because the government simply hasn't said it is dropping it because it is now suddenly more convinced of the libertarian
1: argument it hasn't it's just said, effectively, it's not expedient now to do this. Although, Or, or maybe maybe it's because there are some uh, Conservative MPs who, who uh, have made, you know, they're sort of the last person to have sat on Boris Johnson. They yeah. have made the libertarian that, argument. Of and, course, and, and that's twisted. exactly
4: the reason, David. The reason that he's moved on this is there is a large tranche of Conservative MPs who adhere to the view that you don't want to be regulating what people do yeah. in that way. And Boris Johnson has always had, traditionally, a strong a strong amount of sympathy with that position, a position which is not ridiculous. I just think, you know, that the evidence, subsequent evidence, has indicated he's not right. But that's a conclusion I've reached. I think he's just a lot more conflicted about which of these positions is right. And he goes back and forward on it. I have some... I don't think that's a great quality in a prime
1: minister, to be honest, but I think, it, you know, I have some sympathy for it. It's interesting as well, the, 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 the way that the public always, you know, quite often if you poll, you know, is the government change it? If the government's got it wrong, do you mind if they perform a U-turn? No, but they do it all the time on every topic. Then you start to think, well, you know, where's it going? And they they, um, they blow in the wind a bit. Daniel Finkelstein and David Wanovich there. And, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times red box. Up next are today's politicians, the worst.
5: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Are today's politicians really the worst ever? Or do we wear rose-tinted spectacles when it comes to assessing the calibre of the current crop? I mean, maybe people have always just complained about this sort of thing uh, down the ages. Or is there something about, across all parties, there's something about the current crop of political leaders in Westminster, which means they don't just they just don't match up to their predecessors? Well, previously on this show, Andrew Neill veteran political interviewer, told me the political generation who served in the World Wars had a status which today's leaders lack. We've also heard from Jeremy Vine, Adam Bolton, David Dimbleby, Jonathan Dimbleby and Trevor Phillips on this show who've bemoaned the quality on offer. But Andrew Marr said it's all false memory syndrome and there's never been a golden age. So today that's what we're going to try and work out. Are today's politicians particularly rubbish or do we give them a hard time? Have we always given the politicians a hard time? Is that part of what democracy is all about? And it isn't just the broadcasters who think we're in a bit of a trough right now. The leader of the House of Commons, Government Minister Mark Spencer, has promised to create a higher calibre of political candidate at the next general election. The Tories in particular think there were people elected in 2017 and 2019 who perhaps shouldn't have been. In a moment, we'll hear from some of Our best political Westminster watchers, Isabel Harbin from The Spectator, who wrote the book Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. Eleanor Goodman, former political editor of Channel 4 News, has been watching politicians since the Thatcher era. And the academic, Will Jennings, will give us a history lesson of why we've been moaning about them for a very long time indeed. But first, let's hear what some top political broadcasters have told me about the quality of this political generation.
4: Up until the sixties, most politicians and
1: uh, and indeed I think nearly all prime ministers up until the mid sixties had been bloodied by war. Uh, they had been in the trenches like Harold Macmillan, or they had fought against the Nazis like uh, Ted Heath and Dennis Healing. Clem Ackley, prime minister after the war was medevaced twice out of Gallipoli in World War I, Major Attlee, as he was often called. Uh, these people had seen the worst. They'd seen the kind of things that are currently happening in Ukraine. And I think that gave them a seriousness of purpose, and I think it also gave them a status.
2: You and know, I have seen all those things where people make gas and then they lose their job and, never, and their career's over. But, but the result of that has been this, this automaton politician. And, and if you look at the new model politician, it's obviously Boris. And and how the hell does Boris turn up at the Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday looking like that? What is he, he's, it's obviously deliberate, but what's it for, you know? And the fact, is, I suppose there's something about Trump there that, that if you, it's better to make 99 mistakes than one. And the more mistakes you make, they cancel each other out and in the end, people stop talking about them. He was a very nice guy. He was the Earl of Caithness, politically forgotten. Um, who was housing minister, and he came on. He clearly was so nervous. He needed comforting, not by me, but by the, the producer. And he asked, do you think I could have an earpiece so that my principal private secretary, who was there outside, could speak to me down the earpiece? And he was told gently, honestly, you'll do much better if you just listen to the questions and try to answer them.
1: I think my most regular Tory guest was uh, Theresa May, <laughs> because you know we were just down the motorway from uh, Maidenhead, and so she was a minister who was willing to do it. And I have to say, always very good, always you know dealt with the, the question of the day. But probably in the entire course of you know ten years of interviews, roughly speaking, about once a month, never said anything interesting.
6: If I can be blunt about it. The politicians are not as good. They don't have the level of confidence. They are not in so many ways as rounded and they don't tell stories. People want to be, they want the conversation not just to be an exchange of slogans. I think part of the problem of course with modern politics and politicians is that by and large they spend all their time being terrified.
2: The political system and politicians belong to us much more than I think people used to feel. I think there used to kind of be a feeling that the politicians were on the whole, you know, you didn't quite understand why they did it or who they were, but they were sort of decent people who got on with it and you got on with your life, you know. And in moments of crisis, like the Second World War, you turn to them and actually comes in, you get the National Health Service, that's good. You know, on the whole, they're working in, in your favor. And I don't know whether it's because of the increasing sort of use of media probably has a party to play in it and uh, and people having much more of a voice than they used to have indeed you mentioned question time you know that was a place where week after week after week people could go on and have their say people felt that they deserved to be empowered more than just by a five-year general election and therefore they could demand more of their politicians
6: I think there's a lot of false memory syndrome. People look back to the Blair government or the Brown government, um, or indeed the major government as being uh, populated by Athenian, demosthenes style brilliant orators and and deep philosophers and, and people with huge war experience and practical knowledge. And with the greatest of respect to all of them, it wasn't quite like that. We didn't feel quite like that at the time. I know, I think, actually, at the moment, you know, we're gifted with some really interesting characters.
1: That was Andrew Neil, Jeremy Vine, Jonathan Dimbleby, David Dimbleby, Adam Bolton, Trevor Phillips, and, as you heard there at the end, Andrew Marr. They've all been on the show in recent months talking about, as amongst other things, the, the calibre of our current crop of politicians. But is this, is this really a thing? Uh, let's dive into this a bit more now with Isabel Harman, assistant editor of the Spectator and author of "Why We Get the Wrong Politicians." Morning, Isabel. Hello. Uh, we've also got former political editor of Channel Four News, Eleanor Goodman. Hi, Eleanor. Hi. Eleanor, you've been watching politicians for a long time. If you don't mind me saying so, Um. Yeah, I must. Uh, <laughs> how do you, how do they shape up for you? Is this if we if we were putting you in that montage that we, uh, of people we've had over recent months, would you be in the the Andrew Neil camp of you know they're not as they're not as good as they used to be, or the Andrew Marr camp of this is uh, false memory syndrome.
7: I think I'm probably uh, predictably uh, straddled the two <laughs> in the sense that I think that is it was true after the war that people came in with a greater experience. At, that the officer class had worked with the other ranks and they had a sympathy for them. If you think of Macmillan particularly, that was true. And people like um, Healy had had great experience. And, And the pool of people who would make good cabinet ministers was probably much greater than it is today. However, at the other end of the spectrum, I'd say that today MPs work far harder in terms of their constituents, and they used to in those days. I mean, really, they would make a regal progress, sometimes only once a month. And there was one notorious MP, and this was as late as Thatcher's era, who thought he had a, a God-given right to hunt three times a week while representing his constituents, because he happened to represent a constituency in Leicestershire, which is a great hunting country. But I think if you look at what Mm. Uh, the average MP does in terms of hours, how many constituency complaints he deals with. He's much more of a social worker, perhaps, than a, a putative minister. And I think that that is the tension there. Um, and I, I get slightly cross with uh, people who imply that um, now they're quotes all at it. I mean, I think was a degree of groping that went on in the 60s and 70s that will be completely unheard of today because... Um, or or rather it was unheard of then because no one ever talked about it because um, people's, women's expectations in particular were so much lower of of what they could expect.
1: Isabel, your book's called Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. So why why do we get the wrong politicians?
5: (laughs) Uh, Well, today it does cost a huge amount to to become an MP. It's the most expensive and time-consuming job interview in the world. I mean, you end up as a candidate, uh, working, often unpaid for, for nearly two years, uh, campaigning in your seat. Um, you obviously lose your income because you give up your job, or you go part time, um, you end up spending quite a lot of money uh, to get around the constituency to go to these events and so on. And look, I mean, we don't need to feel sorry for the people who do this, who become MPs uh, because they've chosen to do it. They've chosen to spend, you know, their deposit or their life savings or their, in, you know, their inheritance from daddy. We do have to feel like sorry that. for their wives or husbands. <laughs> yes, but I think we should feel more sorry for the people who can't afford that sum of money, who would make great legislators, but just can't afford the price tag of getting into parliament. And that's why we see so many former special advisors and so on uh, who become MPs there's nothing wrong with special advisors being MPs they understand how Westminster and Whitehall works which is quite handy but it's just the dominance of them Um, and they're able to do it because they can quit their jobs and then go back to being a special advisor or working in the sort of Westminster ecosystem very easily it's much harder to do that uh, if you're a doctor for instance or if you're running your own business if you run you know a community shop or something like that you're not going to have the money the time or the resources but you might make a fantastic legislator and a fantastic representative for your community so we're really pricing people out
1: do you think, as well, Eleanor, that the, the spotlight which is on politicians now has changed? You know, in the days when you were on Channel 4 News, that was, you know, you was on it at on it seven o'clock. And, you know, there's the six o'clock news, the nine o'clock news, and the rest of the time, people could go about their day and possibly not think about politics. Maybe um, not think about politics a huge amount between, uh, even between general election campaigns. And these days, the, the, one of the reasons why. Uh, your chap in Lincolnshire couldn't go uh, hunting, It's because there'd be somebody there f- filming it and tweeting it and causing yeah, a row, yeah. and they'd be they'd have had to resign by the end of the day. And the sort of relentless spotlight not only uh, makes it, you know, probably lowers them in our estimations, but also means that only a certain type of person is going to throw themselves into it.
7: I think that's true, and I think the worrying thing is, is it were well, narrowing the gene pool after a period when it when it probably has widened because people. Uh, just feel they can't put their families under this kind of spotlight because now of course you've got the internet you've got uh, if you take a long-term span a much more critical press if i mean if you look at the the, the um the treatment some mps get from the daily mail my god would you really want to do that even though the money is much better than it than it used to be and also as i say the demands from your constituents they expect you to to answer an email and come up with an answer within a week at the very least so that the whole job space has changed so you're more of almost like a councillor than you are as a, a minister in waiting unless you go the select committee route which i think one shouldn't ignore how uh, as Isabel uh, recognises in her book, how the quality of certain MPs and certain kinds of work they do has improved with the development of select committees, which were just a gleam in Norman and St. Steve Arce's eye <laughs> when um, I was at, well, uh, began at Westminster. He was um, the leader of the House under... Um, Mrs Thatcher, and he came up with this idea of select committees and they have immeasurably improved things, just to put the positive side of things. Incidentally, on the subject of the leader of the House, Mark Spencer, I'd have thought any MP who was elected in either 2017 and 2019, might have every reason to feel extremely <laughs> cross with him when he says that he hopes the calibre of MPs coming in next time will be higher because they have more time to interview them. And it's absolute rubbish because normally they get interviewed for a safe seat two years before an election anyway, and, and one wonders how much difference... Um, you know an even more intense weekend would have made is anyone going to actually say well actually I do watch porn in my spare time you know <laughs> it, 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 it's just incredible that and and would you if you did that and this is always the other side which again Isabel points out that if you take if you sieve uh, the your potential candidates too much you can end up with a terrible homogeneity I yeah. mean would, would Boris Johnson have got through a selection process that looked <laughs> scrutinising details people's personal lives, one asks. That's a
1: very good I question. I leave that one
7: hanging there. Leave
1: that one hanging there. <laughs> I will come back to you both in a moment. Uh, we'll speak to Ellen Goodman, uh, former political coach of Channel 4 News, and uh, from The Spectator, Isabel Harmony, who wrote the book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. Coming up, uh, we'll get a bit of a history lesson from Will Jennings as well. And we'll hear from uh, Sir Peter Bottomley. He's the father of the House. He's been an MP since 1975. Does he think... Our MPs are worse than ever. We'll do that next here on Times Radio. We are talking about politicians. Are today's copper politicians the worst ever? Let's hear from Sir Peter Bottomley. He's the father of the House. He's been an MP since 1975, and I asked him whether the current copper politicians were, really were worse than any that have come before.
6: The answer simply is yes. Not everyone's pulling their weight the whole time. Not everyone's pulling in the same direction the whole time. And every now and again, there's a scandal during the last. Five, seven years, I suppose, some really talented people have come forward. And if you go to each of the parties to say who are the people you're helping to win selections when they come before up for choice as a candidate, there are some incredibly talented people. In the Labour Party, maybe you ought to get a Labour person on to talk about who who are some of their best. But however much I may disagree on some things, I feel like Wes Streeting could hold his own in any international debate and probably in any national debate, as long as he doesn't uh, get too partisan. On the Tory side, you can look at people like Tom Tugendhat, who came in and from almost nowhere became chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. And among the backbenchers, take uh, one of my Sussex colleagues, Hugh Merriman, who is incredibly productive in all the backbench meetings he leads and the ones he contributes to, as well as on the Foreign House Commons. So I think that for the outsiders, when I first got elected, the Times had a full-page report on what happened in Parliament and any MP who said anything sensible... Get at least one line if it was more than sensible, it got a paragraph, and people actually knew where the talent was. At present, I think most of it's hidden, and the ones who get most attention are those who say yes to most invitations to radio interviews, like this one.
1: <laughs> I also wondered whether uh, a combination of the political times we've lived through, particularly the last sort of five, six, seven years. Brexit, hung parliaments, general elections, the pandemic has increased public awareness, interest in maybe obsession with politics in a way that previously maybe people, maybe in the 70s and 80s and even to some extent the 90s, people tuned into elections when they needed to or if there was a big, you know, budget and that sort of thing, but probably didn't spend their entire time obsessing over every small comment by a backbencher in in the commons or some realms of radio or, or television. Do you think that as a public we spend too much time looking at, talking about and obsessing with politics?
6: The evidence is no. If, again, if you take the last, uh, I don't know, eight, ten years, more people have voted for more parties than almost any time in our history. I think that, you know, if, if you saw this enormous proportion of people who voted for the UKIP party, or it was called at the time, in the 2019 European elections, and then didn't again, if you saw the enormous uh, growth and then falling away of the Green Party in a similar um, EU election 15, 20 years ago, there's much more... Volatility, and that presumably comes because people are thinking, not because they're not thinking. So I, th- I think that the, the thesis that people aren't interested in is wrong. Uh, for, for those who watch every detail, th- there are some, and I think it's bad. When I was a junior minister, I would say to others, don't take your press cutting seriously. The only person in the world who knows what every, every newspaper, including the Morning Star, um, has, has said about you will be you. Nobody else, unless your mother's still alive and gets the press cutting, service, will, will, will notice. You've got to let things ride on, and that's one of the, the good attributes of Boris Johnson—he doesn't let press coverage uh, affect him too much. What well, I think that the, the ordinary person treats uh, politics like sport—not equivalent to sport—but you know, most people are interested in sport when it gets to the high dramas: the Grand National, the Cup Final, Formula One, especially when we're winning or when, when Brits, British people are winning. But most of the time, they, they don't spend all their time glued to subscription channels t- to get it 24 hours a day. There are some in politics who do. Uh, I, I I learn from them because they know more than I do, but I don't recommend it.
1: And looking back then on your time in the House, God, was there a, a, a glory age? Was there a time when, across the board, sort of putting party politics to one side, but, but there were big beasts in all parties? Or or I wonder sometimes whether it's like rose, rose-tinted spectacles or at least... It's only at the end of a government that you re- that people have become big beasts, not necessarily when they when they arrive. But I just wondered if in the past almost 50 years of you being in the, the Commons, you have you thought this was that was the point where, where the, the calibre of politicians was as good as they've ever been. Uh, in, in politics, people come forward for the moment if they're lucky enough to get their feet through the door.
6: Uh, going back 80 years, my father was the Assistant Private Secretary to the only member of Attlee's cabinet who didn't think he'd make a better Prime Minister than Attlee. In fact, Attlee was a good... For- prime minister most of his competing colleagues would not have been if you take when I first came in I shared room with Douglas Heard and various other people who were then on the back benches and they were incredibly talented people who had a lot of experience and brought that to parliament and it showed when they became senior ministers I think the same thing might apply now but it's not the ones who get the attention that matter and government is affected by what the person at the top does on the major issues. we, we know that and they'll tell us that what you don't hear about people like Robin Walker, who uh, has been around a long time, works effectively at what he's doing without grabbing the microphone the whole time. So maybe we ought to have a sort of once-a-month chat about interesting things that have been done by people you've never heard of, and then maybe they can
1: join the pantheon of people who <laughs> thought they'd make a the better prime minister than the prime minister. <laughs> um, uh, just finally, uh, Peter, would you um, recommend... To, I don't know, somebody in their their 20s right now, a, a career in politics? I'd,
6: I'd recommend a life in politics, whether a career. And oh, that's interesting. Being an MP is one of the 650 people who, who gets paid for parliamentary service. Uh, there are as many journalists, probably accredited to the press gallery. There are plenty of people working as uh, political agents, uh, advisors to leaders of parties. There are lobbyists who are in trying to get Parliament to work effectively and come up with the right results and things that matter to people.
2: Uh,
6: there are academics, uh, some of whom eventually come into Parliament, like uh, Philip Norton. Uh, there are outsiders, journalists like Peter Hennessy, who becomes a great guru of Whitehall. A life in politics doesn't need to be down one track.
1: That's Peter Bottomley uh, telling me, uh, the, the, the leader of the House, my senior MP in the House of Commons. Uh, taking a look back over 50 years. But let's look back even further now. Dr. Will Jennings, a professor of political science and public policy at the University of Southampton, co-author of The Good Politician, which analysed data about politicians between 1945 and 1951. Based on what everyone's been saying, Will, this, this was the golden age of politicians, wasn't it?
8: Well, I think it's certainly true that the idea that there was some golden age when every, every voter and citizen loved politics and politicians is overdone. Uh, if you look back at the poll data we have from the 1940-45 general election campaign, voters were pretty cynical. This, you know, this great um, war hero, Winston Churchill, was spoken of quite disparagingly by a lot of um, voters. Um, people complained about mudslinging by parties. Um, and, and what data we have from the Mass Observation Archive, which sent out these diaries that people ordinary ordinary people um, completed back in the 1940s and 50s and have done so up to the present day we found that they talked about politicians being not straight talking they were (laughs) self-seeking but what was different what was different about that era was that Voters recognised that politicians could be good people. They had performed virtues. They saw that they had qualities. And the more recent data we have from Mass Observation Archive, from survey research, shows that citizens are much more negative and disparaging about politicians. They say nastier things. The language they use is much more emotive. Um, and why is that just a reflection of society in general,
1: do you think, rather than an attitude particularly towards politicians?
8: Well, some, some of the data we looked at, we, there were a mass observation asked about other professions, whether like the kind of um, uh, clergy they asked about. They also asked about um, state agents. Um, and and actually, interesting, we haven't seen the same sort of uprising negativity against other professional classes. There is something about politics that has become uh, more emotive, more more nasty, and and politicians are just much ruder. So when we we asked the same director that was asked in 19, 1945 about some of the post-war politicians, we asked them about George Osborne, David Cameron, Cameron and Ed Miliband, people said much nastier things. They talked about them being smarmy and grubby, um, and there was a sense in the more re- in, in the more recent data that politicians are seen as all the same. Um, you know, and what I think has changed is back in in the 1940s and 50s, people encountered politicians in much a kind of you they could call it slower environments. They listened to politicians talking at length on radio, giving long radio addresses. They didn't have a multiplicity of TV channels. And those politicians were... The the, the Mass Observation diarist talked about politicians being given enough rope to hang themselves, right? They actually had to um, put long arguments um, to to citizens. Whereas today... um, Voters are very cynical about the stage managed nature of politics, sound bites, and um, debates. And so, there is something fundamental about the way that people encounter politics today that makes them much more cynical about that professional, stage managed aspect of politics.
1: That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one, on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.